Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio, episode number 58. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And Jackie's not here. Well, I'm here. Well, you're there, but you're not here. No. I am joining the ranks of John Sicari of BigFatPanda.com, our friends at Detour to Neverland, and Randy Cartwright of what will hopefully be a successful Skype cast from us. Yeah, really. Well, Jackie is actually, you're, oh, what, almost two hours away, right? Yeah, they're about still, still on Long Island, just on the other end of it. That's why it's called Long Island, not yeah. Short Island. Jackie, Dang it ain't. Mm-hmm. Yep. Jackie is uh, out east working the Hamptons Film Festival this week, and the festival is this weekend, so you are sort of locked into being out in the Hamptons for the whole week. Yeah, I've been out here for about three weeks now, bopping back and forth when I can. And uh, almost every week we've managed to get an episode in, but this week we just couldn't get ahead of it. No, there was just no way. You're getting too busy. But nonetheless, we are giving you guys a show. And this week we are reviewing the 1959 animated classic Sleeping Beauty because we are getting ready to watch and discuss the Maleficent sequel. Of course, we're going to do the first, you know, Maleficent as well. But a, a big sequel coming out, and it kind of surprises people that it's coming out, because in spite of the fact that the movie made a ton of money at the box office, Maleficent this is, it actually was met with mixed reviews. We haven't watched it in a while, so I'm interested to see if our opinion has changed since the first viewing many, many years ago. I'm also surprised for when they're releasing it. Like, it's not a Halloween movie at all. I mean, I guess you could make that argument because Maleficent costume, yes, she's a villain, obviously, and her costume is super theatrical. But I just kind of feel like it's weird this time of year. Yeah, but, I mean, that's it. it's not a holiday movie. I guess if there's any month for a Maleficent film to come out, October, Halloween is, I guess, what makes the most sense. I don't know. Well, we're going to roll with it. We're taking a break from our Halloween reviews for a couple of weeks. We'll do Sleeping Beauty, Maleficent, and then it's back to Halloween. Yes. So Sleeping Beauty opens with the king and the queen who have had a baby girl who they have named Aurora. There is a holiday proclaimed throughout the kingdom to celebrate Aurora, and people bring her gifts and well wishes. King Hubert and Prince Philip arrive and announce that Philip will be betrothed to Aurora, uniting both kingdoms, making uh, King Stephen very, very happy. Also arriving are the fairies Flora, Fauna, and Merriweather, and they bring gifts of beauty and song. And before they can give the third gift, suddenly Maleficent arrives uninvited and proclaims that on Aurora's 16th birthday, she will prick her finger on the spindle of a spinning wheel and die. And then she escapes the castle before being captured. 
Meriwether gives the final gift, saying that if she pricks her finger, she will fall into a sleep rather than die and can be awakened by true love's kiss. The king has every spinning wheel in the kingdom burned, and ultimately it is decided that Aurora will live in the forest with the fairies until after sunset on her 16th birthday to ensure her safety. But the fairies give up their magic uh, in order to live as mortals and as peasant women. That's their front, at least. As Aurora's 16th birthday nears, Maleficent sends her raven to find where Aurora is hiding because she has not been able to locate her up to this point. Briar Rose, as she is now known, this being Aurora, is living in a woodcutter's cottage with Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether. As they plan her birthday, uh, they send her to go pick berries to distract her. Um, and while she's out, she tells her animal friends of her prince. Yes, the prince that she has seen in her dreams. While riding his horse, Samson, Prince Philip comes across Aurora, but not knowing her true identity, of course. She races home after telling Philip that she'd see him that night, and then back at the cottage, with some help from their magic, Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether put the finishing touches on Aurora's birthday party. While firing off their wands, the raven spots the cottage and also spots Aurora. The fairies then tell Aurora the truth about her existence, but Aurora is not happy to hear this because... She has been dreaming of meeting this prince and living this happy life. And now, for all intents and purposes, she should be thrilled to be going to the castle. But now she's not going to meet this young man that she has met in the woods. And this is not happy news to her. Back at the castle, Hubert and Stefan start to prematurely celebrate their future before bickering about which castle the prince and princess will live in. Uh, Philip tells Hubert, much to his dismay, that he wants to marry the quote-unquote peasant girl that he met in the forest, and he rides off to find her. Of course, he has no idea that this is the woman that he is betrothed uh, to. The fairies sneak Aurora back into the castle as the sun is setting and decide to give her a moment of privacy as she comes to grip with the truth of this situation because she's still very upset. And of course, Maleficent appears and sends an orb like a Marvel movie to draw Aurora's attention <laughs> into a castle's spire and towards a spindle and spinning wheel that she has magically made appear. Despite their best efforts, uh, the fairies are unable to stop Aurora, who touches the spindle, spindle and falls into a death-like sleep. Flora hatches a plan to put the entire kingdom to sleep uh, until Aurora is awakened. Which, by the way, I'm going to interrupt for a second, is like the all-time greatest cover-up plan in history. I just want to throw that out there now. <laughs> Um, as Hubert starts to nod off, he tells Flora that Philip fell in love with a peasant girl once upon a dream. So the three fairies head back to their cottage to find Philip, who is arriving to meet his unknown love interest, but instead is captured by Maleficent and her henchmen. Upon realizing he's been captured, the fairies head to Maleficent's castle on the Forbidden Mountain. Maleficent has Philip chained up in her dungeon and tells him, uh, 
that the peasant girl is, in fact, the princess that he is betrothed to. The fairies break Philip out of his chains, but give him a sword of truth and a shield of virtue to help him defeat Maleficent and her henchmen. Um, He escapes with the help of the fairies and heads to Stefan's castle, or Stefan's castle, I should say. Uh, Maleficent casts a spell over the castle, really the whole kingdom, uh, blocking it with vines, trees, and thorns, but Philip cuts his way through them. Maleficent then turns herself into a dragon and blocks Philip from entering. Philip eventually throws the sword through the dragon's heart, killing Maleficent and ending the curse. He then kisses Aurora, awakening her, uh, as well as the rest of the kingdom, because now, remember, they're all going to wake up with her. And they ascend a staircase into the ballroom of the castle, where she is reunited with her parents. They share a dance and live happily ever after. So, in short, this is all because you didn't get invited to the birthday party. (laughs) Yeah, you know, we were watching this, and... Sean and I started discussing how I thought the evil queen from Snow White was the worst because her issue is that she's not the prettiest gal in the room and that's why she wants Snow White dead. You could make the argument that, you know, Maleficent is just as bad. You didn't get an invite to a party. Yeah. Yeah. And now now there's a bounty on the princess's head. Yes. So it is it is quite petty. It is quite petty. Um, but it, it actually, in a weird way, does make for a for a great villain. Um, and we'll talk about the characters in just a few moments. But I mean, to, to go so over the top and to be so evil as to as to want to kill this child because her parents didn't invite you to a birthday party um, is so over the top and so diabolical. But it does work and it works for the story. This story the first five minutes of this film, it comes at you really fast. It... Two things right out of the gate. One, we're starting on the book again, not on Blue Velvet. They do start on a book. And both parents in this movie. That's a rarity. Yeah, both parents, the bedazzled book. But they have... <laughs> it is. It looks like a bedazzled book. And, and No, it is. And... It looks like Thanos designed that book. Exactly. And so it's... It moves very quickly because it's it's being narrated. They're turning the pages of the book as they're explaining what's going on, and, and I get it. They're trying to just, you know, cut out all the dead weight. Here's what's happening. Let's get to the action. Um, and they do pull that off. I, I think they do pull it off effectively, actually, because I think for this movie in particular, I don't think you needed to know too much more backstory. I think what they gave you was just enough. True. And eventually, and we're going to discuss this next week in, you know, in the live action Maleficent, we get it, but it's, it's almost not necessary for this story. It's just, she's evil. Here she is. And she's going to get her revenge. Exactly. Um, I do think it's funny that her henchmen for 16 years were only searching cradles because they did not realize that this child would eventually grow up into a teenager. And, I thought it was funny when she starts calling them idiots and imbeciles because it reminded me so much of Cruella DeVille, who we had yet to see. She didn't come out for quite a few years after this. Well, it is Cruella. But it's I'm, her voice. Well, it's, the voice. it's the same voice actress. I mean to say that it's her demeanor. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. 
She has, by the way, I think the best entrance of any villain. And I I remember when we reviewed 101 Dal- Dalmatians saying that about Cruella, that her entrance is so striking because you just see the silhouette of this lady with crazy hair. But Maleficent, I mean, like the chandeliers are rattling, the wind is blowing, and then this is the introduction of that amazing Disney green villain fire. Yeah. And then I think there was purple smoke at some point or green smoke. There were a lot of colors. We'll talk about the art, uh, you know, and the animation of this in just a few moments as well. But I would agree with you. I think that she had a very strong open. I think that she had a very strong introduction. And pretending that I have not ever seen this movie before, you know that she's up to no good. And she is legitimately scary out of the gate. Yeah, it's almost, uh, it reminds me, even though this was way, way before, I guess you could even say that later Jurassic Park took a page out of that book. I'm thinking like when the T-Rex comes and all you see is the water glass shaking. That's kind of what this reminds me of is, you know, it's going to be bad before you even see her. Right. And a lot of movies, you know, a lot of them have that effect on you. And sometimes it's sound. Um in uh in Peter Pan when you hear the clock ticking you know the crocodile's coming in jaws all you hear is the music before you see the shark so yes i think that that's actually i think that's a fair comparison in spite of the fact that the movies were released so far from each other and then they couldn't be more di- uh, you know different from each other but i think that's that's what i like about that in particular because I like it's that fear of the unknown that we've discussed before um, however in this case you do see her before you see the T-Rex before you see the shark in Jaws her introduction is a lot faster compared to those others yeah for a villain she's introduced pretty early on in the storyline I think the only other, I mean Cinderella it's the stepmother so she's brought in pretty early on and then Snow White it actually opens with the villain because, you know, they're doing the mirror, mirror on the wall. Um, but for the way that this is set up, yeah, she does come in pretty early. Yeah. It, it's not like eventually Aurora meets her. It's, you know, she, she crashes the party, like we said. Yeah. Um, I do like her dialogue in general um, when she tells well, her. well. Yeah. Well, it's the way that she delivers it. And just the th- like when she tells her henchmen, you're a disgrace to the forces of evil. It's it's so <laughs> tongue in cheek and it's unintentionally funny. It's unintentionally funny, but it adds to the character because she's not only scary, but she's also sarcastic and she is very bright. She's a very smart villain. That the disgrace to the forces of evil is one of my favorite lines, not just in the movie, but probably of any Disney villain. It's amazing. And even just her opening speech, too, with the listen well when she lays out how this is going to go and the prophecy about Aurora's 16th birthday. It's She commands attention. She does. And I think that her smarminess, you, you see it echoed later I think in Ursula, in us, uh, in uh, the Little Mermaid, um, because Ursula has that panache, but she's also unapologetic, and 
you know, a great line is when, uh, when, when Ariel asks, well, how am I, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, how am I supposed to get his attention without my voice? And she goes, use your body language. Body language. Exactly. Um, so I think that out of the gate, before we even move forward with the rest of the plot here or, or the rest of this review, I think out of the gate, you have to put Maleficent probably in the... It, she's got to be in the top five of all-time Disney villains. She's not in my personal top five. Just because... And I think that has to do with the era that we grew up in. Um, but what's amazing, and I'm, I'm just kind of realizing this now, is we're just we're going through all of these qualities about her. And we're talking about her. We haven't even hit upon the fact that she later turns into... A crazy dragon. Yeah. Like, but that's where you could make that argument where she's a top five villain because she does it all on her own. I agree. And, you know, she has her henchmen, but they're useless. Um, I Yeah, they show up later again in Black Cauldron. Yeah, and they look like them too, actually. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, up to this point in time, for the most part... Uh, up to the date that we have recorded this episode of this show, if you look back on a lot of the Disney villains that we have um, discussed, like the Thorned King, he had his henchmen in the Black Cauldron. Judge Doom had the weasels. Um, I think, you know, Jafar had Iago. I mean, not not a henchman, but he had that help. Really, though, the evil queen from Snow White, Ursula... Ursula has Flapsum and Jetsum. Right, but she doesn't have, like, an army of henchmen around her. So... Yeah, Maleficent's got numbers. She's got numbers, but but they don't do anything for her. So then that's my point, is those... Ultimately, she has to take it matters into her own hands. The three of them do that. The three of them do that almost in equal measure. Right. So I can see where, you know... They they obviously, every time that Disney made an animated film, they built upon previous animated films. So I, my point is, I can see the lineage here where they built off the Evil Queen when they were working on Maleficent, and then they built on Maleficent when they did Ursula. So uh, there is clearly a path here. Even if you want to talk Lion King, um, Scar had the hyenas, and he had a lot of hyenas, and... You know, without them, that stampede doesn't happen. Right. That kills Mufasa. Long live the king. So I think that you really do have to look at this character specifically, understand her place in the Disney canon, and know that for upwards of 40, 50 years, even up until when they worked on Enchanted and... Uh, Susan Sarandon's character turns into a dragon. It's it's the the groundwork has been there for a long time, and I think that that makes her a groundbreaking Disney villain. That's a really great point, especially when you if we're just talking about the fairy tales specifically. And I almost kind of wish that we had done these reviews back to back to back, done Snow White, then Sleeping Beauty, or then Cinderella. That came in 1950 and then Sleeping Beauty to really compare the three against each other, especially because I deemed them all as flowery princesses. And we kind of dispelled that with Cinderella, Snow White. Mm -mm. No, I'm not taking that back on, on 
my flowery princess stance. But, um, you know, if you put Maleficent up against the evil queen, you definitely get that evolution because the evil queen goes down into her dungeon where she's got all of these potions and she makes the poison apple. So she technically has to make a recipe for her evil ways. Maleficent is able to just conjure things. So you already see that evolution of going from, I guess, I guess you could compare it to, to like a, a witch to a sorceress. Yeah. I think that that's a fair comparison. I, yeah, I agree with that. Um, and even like, if you look at Cinderella with the evil stepmother, she didn't possess any powers other than she was a horrible human being. And she used, right. and she used her, her actual daughters as fodder. Right. True. So it's, it's definitely interesting when, you know, now that we've been doing this show for over a year and we've reviewed so many of these films to just see and, and that's kind of where I actually don't mind that we're doing these things out of order because you, you're pulling from influences years later and it's not until we do these movies that you see it. And I just think it's so interesting. And, and it makes me really respect the process that much more because I think that these animators and these storytellers from Walt's time up to current day, they take this so personally and they want to get it right. Like, they, they understand that there's a lineage. They understand that they have to do right by these films and do right by the history of this company. So I I love when we can go back and pull things like this and say, oh, yeah, uh, Maleficent from 1959 influenced this in 2007 and whatever. I just think that it's uh, it's so intriguing to me. And, and, and it's it's only kind of dawning on me now <laughs> how integral the history of these films is because w- without, without looking back on them, I don't think it's possible for these movies to still be made the way that they're being made. You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? No, it does. I guess because, you know, if you're looking at the Disney canon, you want to make sure that you don't repeat yourself, that there's not similarities. And I would think if you are looking at the history, you're trying to stay away from things like that. But, yeah, you're right. It is interesting to see how they do draw from their own history, especially with this one in particular, too, because they worked on this for about 10 years before it got released. They started making this and Cinderella around the same time. It's just that Cinderella was further along, so they pushed that one out first. So there was definitely a recipe for disaster because you're talking about two classic fairy tales, but because you know they're they're being produced on similar timelines yeah there there was definitely the risk of crossover yeah all right so back to the script here though um i do want to call a few things out early on in this film same for example i understand that you want to make this dress i understand that you want to bake a cake and that you want to have this lovely birthday party for Aurora, her 16th birthday. She's betrothed. She's going back to the castle. She's going to learn her true identity. And you're crying because you've been raising her as your own for 16 years, knowing that you had to give her back. So 
why would you send her into the woods alone on the one day in 16 years that you literally cannot let her out of your sight? Well, I understand they, they needed a setup, but come they on. They needed a setup, they needed a distraction, but I mean, it's what's interesting is that it's it's not like she ran into Maleficent. I think if that was the case, then it would have been really, really contrived. It's almost like, even though they are betrothed, it's almost like, and and this film doesn't really have a subplot, but in a way it's almost like he is because he is what stops the fairies from carrying out their plan to return her. Right. Speaking of which, the betrothed thing is what bothers me. Um, I mean, I I don't have a problem with that but um when when the prince first meets aurora there's clearly an age gap he he looks like he's about like five or six years old looking over the baby yeah and i don't know that's just kind of off-putting to me i feel like it would have been better if they were like both babies you know the age gap doesn't really make a difference when they're you know now meeting but um I don't know. I just there's I just something a bit weird. Like, how is a six year old going to even understand th- that? There's know? something a bit unsettling about it. Yeah, like here's a baby, and you're going to marry it one day. Yeah, weird. Yeah, but again, they were just trying to move storyline very quickly. So I get it, and I and I don't disagree with you, but I understand why they did what they did there. No, and it's it's of the time because Aurora at this point is sixteen, and they're they're getting ready to marry her off. Things you know happened a lot faster back then. People died younger. They got married younger. They had kids younger. Right. Sure, I'll buy into all of that, but it's just weird to see a five year old kid looking at a baby that he's going to one day marry. Right. Well, remember, Jack. It was it is of course the fourteenth century. They reminded us of that a couple of times. Oh God. Yeah. It was like it was like being inside the carousel of progress, the way they would talk about, <laughs> oh, you know, we're in the 14th century now, Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> they did say it a lot. They yeah. definitely did. The uh, the operatic singer alone in the woods. Yeah, that's not hard to spot. She's not very inconspicuous. There's just I, I, <laughs> I do. I do think and I, and I understand why, but it is a, a little bit cheesy and it does take me out of it a bit that she did nothing but draw attention to herself she could not help but draw attention to herself and they didn't do her any favors by forcing her to leave and then when they get to the castle we're going to give you alone time and then they go oh how we're so stupid how did we how did we do this how did we let this happen exactly we're all asking the same question you literally had 16 years to prepare for one day and you fell asleep at the switch. <laughs> it's so true. Um, no, and that's, that's the funny thing, too, is that, you know, back to what you said about the operatic singer in the middle of the woods, that is where the term flowery princess is applied perfectly. That's that's why, you know, not that I, I'm not going to take credit for coming up with that phrase, however... That's why it comes to mind is because she's singing to the animals and like, yes, we've seen Snow White do this before. But like, I think Aurora is even more la-di-da than Snow White is. At times. And I I think that it's no better exemplified uh, or no, no, there's no better example of it, I should say, than when 
she realizes that she's got to get back to the cottage and he goes when will I see you again? And she goes, never. And he goes, never? She goes, well, maybe. When? Tonight. Wait a minute. In in literally 10 seconds of dialogue, you went from I'm never going to see you again to I'll see you in a couple hours. Yeah, that, that whole thing, it, it bothers me so much because I actually really like the meeting. I, I still think Jasmine and Aladdin have the best meet cute. You know, we said it when we reviewed it. I think it's like the most natural run-in and evolution. I think it's great. But I actually really do like Aurora and Prince Philip's meeting. I mean, yes, it's a little bit like Snow White where the prince just kind of sneaks up behind her when she's singing. But at least Prince Philip had a reason to be out in the woods and was like tracking her voice. It's not as startling as Snow White where she's just like, wishing in a well that her prince will come and oh there he is um you know so i can i can kind of get past the it's not exactly random but i like how he just finishes the song and the solo becomes a duet it's it's cute but then we go from that he's pursuing her he grabs her hand and she pulls it away four times and that bothers me a lot no means nobody and then she kind of starts buying into it. And then she's just like, oh, goodbye. Like, that, that's where, like, Aurora totally loses it for me. And, and that's where, you know, for as much as I start liking her up until that point, it, like, why? What's the reason for this? Like, I know you do have to get back home, but, like, your, your fairy godmother just sent you out into the woods. Like, there, there was no rush for you to get back. So I guess you're sort of burying the lead and, and and we'll take a break from plot here to talk about character because we've already waxed poetic about Maleficent anyway, but you've sort of buried the lead in terms of um, Aurora. So for you, Aurora, in terms of, we, we talked about where um, Maleficent falls on the all-time list of Disney villains. Suffice to say, in your opinion, Aurora seems like she'd be kind of low on your list in terms of all-time Disney princesses. And I'll be honest with you, um, I sort of agree with you for all of the same reasons. Yeah, she's, and I mean, it was not my intention to bury the lead, but I mean, if you've listened to this podcast from the beginning, uh, if you've not, welcome. But if you have, I don't think it's any surprise, you know, we, we've said we're, we're 90s kids. Our generation is the Disney dynasty. I grew up on Ariel, Jasmine, and Belle, and... You know, I, I just don't jive with the earlier princesses the same way that I do with them. And I, I don't think it's just my generation. I think that it's because I identify more with these, you know, Ariel, Belle, and Jasmine are, are more independent. They're stronger. They're more forward-thinking. Um, but even, you know, I mentioned it in the beginning of the episode is that, yeah, I kind of did lump Snow White, Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella in as these flowery princesses. We dispelled it with Cinderella watching it now for the purpose of this show completely changed my mind on her because, you know, I thought that she was just kind of weak and did as she was told, but not so she, she figured out a way out of her situation. Yes. Laura, does nothing she goes to sleep and really 
what we what I realized upon watching it this time is that the heroes are of this story are really the fairies, even more so than Philip. Like, yeah, he brings Maleficent down, but like, couldn't have done it without them. Right. They're the ones that make the sword. They make the shield. They sort of put a spell on the sword before he throws it through the heart of the dragon. It's... And they make the sacrifice, you know? you got to give them credit for what they, they did. Is They decided to protect Aurora, and they're like, wait, we're going to have to live like peasants without magic? And they did it because it was what was for the greater good. The greater exactly. good of the kingdom. It was a selfless thing to do. Yeah, the greater good of the kingdom, the greater good of the child. Um, and, of course, you know, Philip does go and, and eventually does defeat Maleficent. It, it's interesting to me that... Um, for the better part of, I'd say, maybe not half, maybe a third of the movie, she's asleep, she's out. It's interesting to me that the title character of this film, in reality, is not the most important character in the movie. She has, I think, about 18 minutes of screen time. 18 minutes of screen time in a movie that's about an hour and 18 minutes long. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So what, about 20%? Less yeah. than 25%. And that's your title character. What what bothers me about her too is that, and I mean, it is kind of funny, is I guess it puts it in the context of how young she really is because she is, you know, as we said, 16. She's so, after she meets Philip, and, and, and then again, this is where it falls apart. She meets him got a little crush on him. She runs away from him for no apparent reason. And then they make the plan after she's trying to get away to meet up again later that night. So when the fairies tell her the truth about who she is and that they're taking her back, she's more upset about not being able to go and meet up with him later that day because she's got this schoolgirl crush that the fact that she's a princess, everything else that they've just told her that, you know, she's going to go meet her biological parents completely lost on her yeah she has a, t a complete lack of interest in any of that but i i kind of understand why though in many ways because you know think about it from her perspective she's been living in this cottage with her three aunts as she's been calling them i think mm -hmm. she she does not know what her purpose in life is she does not know why she's not allowed to meet i mean she says they have told her she is not allowed to meet other people so she's living in seclusion. She's living in their little bubble. It's a completely sheltered life. It's not unlike Ariel wanting to leave the sea and go beyond land where the people are, in my opinion. So I sort of forgive some of that because for the first time in her life, she's independently met somebody. She's independently made a decision to go see this person again in reality, it's the only independent decision she's ever made in her life, and now it's taken away in a matter of minutes. And I think well, regardless... The first time her life has had a little excitement. And regardless of why she's being told she can't do it, the fact is, no matter how good or how bad the reasoning is, she has now had her freedom taken away from her again. So I kind of forgive her for it. I mean, yeah, for all intents and purposes, you're going to meet your biological parents, go live in a castle and marry a prince. It's kind of everything that you just said you wanted. 
So I don't think that that's so much an issue with the character as much as it is another slight issue with the screenwriting. And that's not to say that the screenwriting is bad in this film. Far from it. But scenes like, I'm never going to see you again, maybe, okay, I'll see you tonight. You know, her waxing poetic about being out of the cottage and marrying a prince, and I've only seen him in my dream. Well, you're going to have all of those things now. So I think that it's just a product of some sloppy screenwriting. I don't think it's an issue with the character. I just think it's an I think it's an issue with how that portion of this story is told. I would agree with that, and I think that also lends itself to what you said before about you know the fairies being kind of asleep at the switch. The one day that they really have to keep her safe, and all you have to do is let the sunset and then bring her back. And maybe it's not a flaw. Maybe it's just the irony with the whole thing. The fairies are kind of the reason for as much as they're the heroes. They needed to be, they needed to step up because they're technically the reason the prophecy got fulfilled. Right. They took her out and it, it, it's almost like an Oedipus thing. They took her away and removed her from the situation so that she didn't prick her finger on the spinning wheel. But because they did this, that's the thing. Sleeping Beauty could have lived in the castle with her parents for the all intents and purposes, the way that this plays out, she could have lived there the whole 16 years and they could have just hit her on that day. So yeah. Maleficent couldn't find her. But because they took her away and had to get her back, that that's it. The prophecy became fulfilled because of them. Exactly, because Maleficent tells them before the sun sets on her 16th birthday, she's going to prick her finger. So she's telling you basically exactly when this is going to happen. Almost down. Well, to the I think it. I think it could have happened any time over the sixteen years. But that's the irony: is that you got away with it for that long, and you had not even twenty-four more hours to go, and you dropped the ball. Twenty-four. I mean, they had it. They they, they needed it for fifteen more minutes. Yeah, and they left her alone in the room. True. So some of what happens happens for convenience sake, and. I don't jive with movies that are convenience for convenience sake most of the time because I think that it kind of comes off as lazy. And, you know, at the lack of sounding disrespectful, yeah, maybe this was convenient for convenience sake. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that these movies were expensive to make, most of the time didn't return a profit because they were so expensive to make, they couldn't possibly return a profit. Walt Disney was shifting his focus into television and, and, and to Disneyland. And maybe parts of this film fell victim to distraction. I'm, I'm wondering if there's some truth to that. I don't think that Disney is completely to blame because this wasn't their story. This is their adaptation of a fairy tale. Um, so I'm not going to point the finger at them, but yeah, I mean, you could make a case for that, that, you know, you, you have the best storyteller in the world who wasn't really flying the plane for this one. Yeah. And I think at times it showed and and we've called a couple of those instances out because then you have things 
that happen in the film and dialogue such as the fairies. And the one says, it looks awful. And, and the other one goes, well, that's because it's on you. Again, one of the all-time great insults in the history of cinema. Um, I think the scene with the kings and the drunk minstrel, that's hysterical. Hilarious. It's hysterical. Hilarious. Not just the drunk minstrel, the the relationship between the two of them. And I mean, I guess that that's the thing why it's so interesting and so entertaining is because you don't get to see a lot of fathers because most of the Disney parents are dead. So to see a relationship develop between two of them, it's great. They're a cross between bickering siblings and like the next door neighbor who you can't stand. Yeah, they have a, exactly. They have a very bizarre relationship. Exactly. It's great. No, and the, the minstrel, I, I would watch a whole movie just with him. He was a riot. Yeah, it's called the Eddie Van Halen story. I uh, <laughs> I forgot that when Maleficent turns into the dragon, she talks about raining down the fires of hell. I forgot about that, too. And I thought to myself, ooh, not that I mind. I'm not offended by that, but you want to talk about something that wouldn't necessarily hold up in a Disney film nowadays. I don't think in Frozen 2 we're going to hear about Elsa being struck down by the fires of hell. If we do, the movie jumps up high in my book. <laughs> but I don't think it's is, going is, to happen. Is that your new criteria for Disney movies? They have to curse and you give it an extra star? Eh, why not? <laughs> um, but I just don't think that it's that it's going to happen. But I I forgot that bit of dialogue. You're not hearing that in Phantasmic, that's for sure. No, that's true. And what's really surprising is that she bleeds a little bit. Yeah, compare the 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 ratio of blood to the wound. She really doesn't bleed that that much. But what's interesting too is that. You know, the first Disney movie where you ever see blood, well, technically it's this one, but I guess they're not counting it. You don't see it human blood until Black Cauldron. Right. But what's funny, though, is that you see sleep Aurora prick her finger and, and it doesn't draw blood. Right. She just immediately goes down. Yeah. She went down for the count. As soon as she touched that thing, not like in Black Cauldron, where you saw uh, bloody chopping blocks and bloody axes. There was just a lot of blood. I haven't watched the Black Cauldron in a year. I might have to watch it tonight. I was thinking the same. We're talking about it so much. I got to give it another viewing. I don't think my opinion's going to change an awful lot. No, but I feel like it's just going to become a Halloween staple for no reason. Yes much like the rest of the films that we'll talk about towards the tail end of this month. And some of the films that we talked about last year, you can go back and listen to those in the back catalog. Um, Do you have anything else in terms of the script that stands out to you before we maybe move on to some of the other characters and the animation? Uh, no, I mean, that's, here's the thing. We've found a lot of fault with the script and there, you know, like we said, there's dialogue that doesn't always make sense. It's very contradictory at times. And, you know, for as much as I don't really like Aurora as far as princesses go, 
there are still a lot of things that this movie does right. And one of the reasons that I can look past whatever they're saying is because this film is stunning. This is one of the most gorgeous Disney films ever. And that's definitely something because this wasn't a big part of my repertoire as a kid that was completely lost on me. Like the, the backgrounds of, of this movie just blow me away. Even, even like from the jump in the opening, you know, um, when they're, when they're celebrating, when princess Aurora is born, they're singing hail to princess Aurora. Um, it's such a detailed scene because there's so many people as they're walking into the castle. But what's more than that is that, you know, it, it definitely looks like a medieval tapestry. And what struck me more than anything is that they use such a broad color palette. There is no reason that all of these reds and blues and hot and cool colors should should work together but they do and it's gorgeous it it just blends unbelievable yeah that's a total compliment to mary blair who took that medieval gothic look and sort of blended it with some 50s contemporary and made probably if not the most certainly one of the most aesthetically pleasing disney films of all time and really it was sort of the last of its kind it's incredible. It's classic Disney. And if you think about the movies that came out after this, this movie came out in 59. Think about the movies that came out in the 60s. 101 Dalmatians, The Jungle Book, The Aristocats, a lot more of that modern contemporary artwork and a lot of it that Walt Disney himself didn't really love. Colors that bled over the lines. You know, we talked about it when we did our review of 101 Dalmatians. So this was for all intents and purposes, the last quote unquote classic Disney animated film. Right. It was Mary Blair. And then the concept artist was Ivan Earl and he did all of the hand painted backgrounds. Um, No, and you're right. We talked about it in Dalmatians that that was completely stylized all on its own. I think if I had to compare this to something, I would say it resembles Alice in Wonderland a little bit. Like once you get to the uh, Queen of Hearts castle, not so much the rest of the movie, like when she's in the forest. But um, I feel like, you know, before she follows the white rabbit, when she's just out in the countryside and definitely, like I said, with the Queen of Hearts, I feel like the art kind of resembles that and that's because of mary blair she did that as well but um where disney was hands off on this one uh he he left it to ivan earl to to you know just kind of handle all of the art direction and they were utilizing a new form of technology called technorama which used tremendous almost bed sheet sized sheets of paper to draw on and it was painstakingly difficult for them to do this and cost far more money than it could have ever made back for many many years but Walt Disney wanted this to look beautiful and I think they beyond a reasonable doubt accomplished their goal 
Yeah, I I definitely think this film was more about what they could achieve aesthetically than story. Because that's the thing. We, we know the story of Sleeping Beauty. Everyone does. So I think what pushed it so far it is definitely the the visual style of it and you can you can kind of tell um where how how they're kind of moving the camera i mean it it's almost like the concept of the multiplane camera but spread out next to each other instead of creating that depth because where it's where it's most impressive to me is when prince philip is on his horse going through the forest and like you'll kind of see the tree in the foreground and then like everything moves to the next slide and you'll see him come out from behind the tree um so it's kind of easy to tell where they did it like where the panels went from one to the next but it's still it's flawless the way that they do it yeah, and you get the animals in the forest. There are those classic Disney-looking animals, but the lines are so clean. They look great. And when Aurora and Philip are dancing in the forest, the reflection in the water really mm. is breathtaking. And the way that when she twirled and her dress twirled with her and wrapped around her waist and her knees, like it's, it's so lifelike. It is absolutely breathtaking. Yeah, it um and and what's so impressive too is for as detailed as the backgrounds were, all of the characters still jump off of it. Yeah. And that was a that was sort of a problem that they faced with it initially was they had these backgrounds that were so detailed and they were putting characters in front of them, but the characters were almost getting lost. That was a big struggle for these animators on this film. Especially the season ones, like, you know, for for people like Frank and Ollie who were used to doing this one way, they felt like their characters were being lost. And there was a big point of contention with um, with Ivan Earl because they had to answer to him because Disney, Disney put him in charge of this one. And where you could normally go to Walt and say, hey, this is not working. And he would be receptive as long as you had a good reason why this guy didn't want to hear it. And that's kind of where the pink blue joke came from with the fairies always changing her dresses because they really couldn't decide what it was going to be and what would be most effective so that she didn't get lost. And the gag doesn't get old, mind you. No, it doesn't. Because even when we go back to the book at the end of it, the dress is still changing on the book page. They carried it all the way through. And again, it very impressive to me, given 1959, that they were able to keep changing that dress's color. She's And it's not like she's just standing there getting her color changed. She's doing a dance number with Philip, and the dress is changing color while they are in action. And they don't miss a beat. And it is so clean and it is so flawless every time that dress changes color and changes back. I mean, really, really, this movie is a technical marvel. Yeah, I mean, my hat is always off to the ladies of the ink and paint department. I am in awe of them constantly, but I, I think this is where they really shine. And this is where it, it is truly a lost art. Mm-hmm. In terms of some of the other characters, um, we mentioned the kings before. They have a very unique relationship. They're kind of funny. The queen, interesting, interestingly enough, 
you have King Hubert, you have King Stefan, or Stefan, but the queen is just the queen. She doesn't have a name. She's nameless, yep. And other than being in the first scene of the movie, you never see her again and doesn't serve much of a purpose here. You may as well have killed her off, just like every other Disney parent. Um, Flora, Fauna, and Mayweather, or Merryweather, I should say, um, very funny characters in spite of some of their flaws that we pointed out before. I do think that their comedy is as funny now as it was then. Um, I don't think their gags get old. I don't think their shtick gets old. And I do find joy every time I see them on the screen. Like it, it like I said, the shtick never gets too it never becomes too much. It's never over the top for me. Yeah, I I had only seen this once or twice as a kid, and they were what I remembered most from the movie. But I agree with you. What I like so much about this movie is is mostly because of them. Yeah. They're the most memorable. They're certainly the comic relief, but they they really are the heart of this movie. They are. Um I mean it's basically it's it's a lot of secondary secondary characters and background characters that really do drive this film to a conclusion. Not a ton of music in this film. You really just have All Hail Princess Aurora and Once Upon a Dream. And Once Upon a Dream we talked about it before. It's a nice song. It's a nice duet. Um I think it's heartfelt. I think that the two of them have the actor and actress who played them. Um, I think that they sounded great. I think that they were extraordinarily talented. And I bought their singing voices. You know how sometimes you see an animated film and and a singing voice comes on and you go, there's no way that that sound comes out of that person or out of that monkey or that rabbit or that deer or whatever it is that, that you're seeing singing on film in a Disney film. This worked, though, and that's partially because they sort of modeled the characters after the actual actors. Right. They were definitely influenced in the animation, but um, yeah, they're together. They're great. I, I think Once Upon a Dream is a great duet. It's really pretty. And, you know, even though there are few songs in this movie... I think it goes back to what, you know, I was talking about before is that this really, we know the story of Sleeping Beauty. This was supposed to be more about the visual. And to me, this is like one big, long music video because I, I guess it's almost like what Disney was trying to do with Fantasia to set this animation to music because it was it was influenced off of, Tchaikovsky's ballet, Sleeping Beauty. And that's where, you know, they drew most of the inspiration for the music from. I think it was more about highlighting that and and putting the, setting the visuals to it as opposed to really trying to pull out all the stops with the animation. And I think that's the difference too. You know, you're talking about how realistic Aurora and Philip look when they're dancing. I think that was the point. They wanted to look more real as opposed to 
like a Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs where, you know, you're looking at the dwarfs and it's like, oh, look what they, they did with this animation. They're so cute and they're so cartoony. And look how they made them move. This wasn't really about the movement. Right. And the actor and actress, Mary Costa, played Princess Aurora and Bill Shirley, who was a pop singer at the time, he played Prince Philip. Yes. Um, but you're right. And, and, and part of that, too, I think, comes from when you when you go back and you watch Snow White versus um, this film, this film, the facial features, they have a lot of depth. If there was one knock we had against Snow White, it's that they looked very flat. Other than the dwarfs, Snow White and the prince looked incredibly flat. They didn't have a lot of depth to their face. They they were they didn't have a lot of shadow. Right. Well, Cinderella was the first one I think where they really started stepping forward into making them look more realistic. Like even you could see like she has more eyelashes. Her lips are a little bit of a different color. She looks like she's wearing a little bit of makeup. And they tried to make her look like the actresses of the time in the 50s and I think Aurora takes that, you know, to the nth degree. I think you're right. But I do have to call... Like, sometimes Aurora looks like Gwen Stefani to me, between the eye makeup and the red lips. Mm -hmm. I do have to call one thing to attention, though. I do have to say, you were incorrect about something. You were incorrect about something, but you you were on the same track. Cruella DeVille was voiced by Betty Lou Gershon, who was not in this film. The actress that you're thinking about was Verna Felton, who played one of the fairies, but they had used her in a number of Disney films. She was in Cinderella. Yes. She was she was the the uh, the, uh, the Queen Red of Hearts. Queen. The, right. Yeah. She was in the it. Jungle Book. She was Colonel Hathi's wife. In fact, that was her last uh, film, I believe, before she passed away. She was in Lady and the Tramp. She was in Cinderella. But and we know Dumbo, that I think too. Which one? Dumbo, I think, too. Wasn't, yes, that, it wasn't was, that the thing that she, the she, joke was, like, she played both elephants? She was one of the elephants that picked on Dumbo as a baby. Yes. Then that's who I'm thinking of. But, so you were on the right track. But we know that back in the day, Disney used to recycle a lot of their voices. And right. he just then, kept going to her. He loved her. Then... Yes, the, then Maleficent was somebody else, though, that you wouldn't expect. I'm going to look this up right now. I, well, I have no choice. It's I right am. in front of me. Eleanor Audley voiced Maleficent, and that that's what I'm thinking of. <sighs> Maleficent and Lady Tremaine are the same. Yes, that's what it was. I'm looking at yes. it right now. Mm-hmm. And then Merriweather was also the red clip because it's it's so drastically different. But you know what? I mean, when you think about it, the way that they recycled these actors and actresses and they stuck them in everything, it's it's easy to lose track of who was in what and how many times they got reused. Because uh, oddly right. enough, they really don't, even though it's the same actors and actresses, they other than other than the voice actor who played Ka and played Winnie the Pooh, um, Whose name Jim is Cummings. No, no, no. The Jim Cummings plays plays Winnie the Pooh now. The actor oh. who played uh Sterling Holloway. Sterling yes. Holloway. Yes, yes, Other yes. than him, because his voice is and so he was unique. Also the stork. Right. In Dumbo. Yeah. Other than him, because his voice is so unique, the rest of them, I would have had no idea that any of them were in those other films. 
Right. I mean, that, that was kind of a thing of the time. Like when you got cast, like you would sign a deal and have to like fulfill X amount of studio films. You know, it's like, that's like what killed Elvis is he had a contract and he had to do eight films and then go back to touring and he, he couldn't handle all of it. But, um, you know, you, you typically signed on for whatever the contract was, however many films it was. But what I kind of like now is that they don't have those same strict rules in place where you're signing on with the studio, but Disney still loves to, to, you know, work with the same people. Like, you know, and it's, it's funny to like go back and look and see them in bit parts and see them grow. Like look at Emily Blunt, who we've been talking about a lot lately, you know, started with this bit part in Muppets and now she's Mary Poppins. Even The Rock, look how he's grown with so many Disney films. Um, you know. Idina Menzel, Josh Gad. Josh Gad, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kristen Bell has been doing a lot. Um, but yeah, you, you, you do, even, even, you know, people like John Stamos who, you know, he's just a Disney fan. He goes to the parks a lot and now he's starting to get cast, which we will talk about when we do the news of the week. Yes. Which we can just about almost jump into here. Um, final review, final say of 1959's Sleeping Beauty. Um, well, for for as much as I don't love Aurora, the title or character, um, I do love the movie. There's still enough there, you know, with the fairies and the humor that they bring um, and the heart that they bring, uh, where I do think that this is, you know, obviously it's a classic and Maleficent she's in a class all, all by herself. And I think, you know, to the question of, does it hold up? Um, you know, I, I was going to say it before because we, we got in so into Maleficent right off the bat. Does sleeping beauty hold up? No, because I think the story has been told. We've seen it before and it's like you said at the top of the episode, there's so much to Maleficent that that's why they decided to do a live action and give her the backstory and shine the spotlight on her. So I think I have a similar opinion, but I think if I, if I can articulate it in a way that's similar to yours, but at the same time, very different. I think the film holds up. I don't know that the character holds up. Maleficent holds up. The fairies hold up. We know the castle holds up because you have one in California that you built the original park around Sleeping Beauty's castle. Ah, but wait. The castle was built before this film came out they were using the castle to promote this film because they sunk so much money into it, they needed a jumping off point for it. Correct, but it still stands and everybody knows Sleeping Beauty Castle is in California, Cinderella's Castle is in Disney World, in spite of the fact that Cinderella's Castle in Disney World looks more like Sleeping Beauty's Castle from the film. Um, 
which is within itself sort of distracting. But I think that the film holds up. I'm not quite so sure that she holds up. Because she is, in spite of the fact that she is the title character, of all of them, I think she's the most secondary character of them all. She's secondary to the secondary characters. It's true. No, I uh, I don't say this often, but I, I think you put that better than I did, that the film holds up. She does not. I would agree with that. Because I do think that it's a classic. I think it's enjoyable. I think the story, for the most part, is enjoyable. I do like the characters. We know the animation is stunning. I think it does have a good score. I think the score helps drive the story with the animation. And I'll be honest with you, I wish that I would have watched this more. Because I, I watched Cinderella a lot. I watched the aforementioned uh, Disney Renaissance films that you talked about. Um, I watched Oliver and Company. I watched The Jungle Book. I watched, um, you know, I watched Bambi. I watched Alice in Wonderland. This was one that we didn't own on VHS. And for whatever reason, I you would always watch like Mary Poppins in school. You never watched this film. Like if it was raining and you couldn't go outside for recess or if you had a holiday break and you always got to watch a movie in class around holiday break. This was never one that was picked. I think because this is more, which is funny because even in spite of the big battle scene that Philip has, I think this is just more typically when you think of this movie, you think it's a girl's movie. But what what I will say, too, is that, you know, again, we talked about how Maleficent has this huge entrance and there's so much to her right off the gate. She stole the show in the first two minutes of screen time. I wish and I, I, I think that it would have had more staying power. I mean, of course, Aurora is one of the classic princesses. I wish that in the 18 minutes of screen time she had, she did steal the show. And that is the title character. She was the standout. And that, you know, when she falls asleep, you really feel her absence. Right. Now when she's out, I'm just kind of like, eh, whatever. Because in spite of the fact that you may or may not love Snow White, for example... You are heartbroken when she dies. Yes. Because we see that through the dwarves. Here, the fairies, like, yeah, they're sad, but they're... But we're going to make this right. Just make everybody else go to sleep while we scheme. Exactly. Exactly. There's just a lot going on here where, I hate to say it, but you kind of don't care about Aurora. And it's a shame because you said it yourself. The film on the surface, the assumption is that it's geared towards little girls. But this movie does have a little bit of something for everybody. I think the battle scene between Philip and, and, and Maleficent is fantastic. And I, I, the waxed poetic about a lot of the comedy in this film, and of course about Maleficent herself, I, I feel like there's more to this movie than people give it credit for. It's just that the title character falls flat. You know what's really funny? To, <laughs> I'm only realizing it now that you said it. If their plan didn't work, technically the fairies 
who are the heroes of this film did perform a mass genocide on this kingdom. If it didn't work, if these yep. people don't wake up, you just wiped out the entire kingdom. Yeah. Basically, we're interested to know what you guys have to say about it, though. Is this a classic in your mind? Is it totally dated? Did you grow up with it? Have you never seen it before? Are you not going to see it now? Let us know on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Monoreal Radio News this week. I'm going to let you bat lead off on the first story because, of course, we do know that Little Mermaid, other than Frozen, is well, I can't even say Frozen is your film because Christina K will fight us on that. Um, it's not yours exclusively, but uh, The Little Mermaid is your film. You've talked about it so many times, so I'm going to let you take the lead on that bit of news. Well, technically, this isn't my film because this is the live action musical that they're doing, and they just announced the official cast, and there are some familiar names. Why are they familiar names? Oh, because it's our picks for the live-action remake. The cast of this musical is is better than what they have planned, I think, for the live-action. This is what it should be. You have um, Olili Carvalho, who played Moana. I always butcher her name. I apologize. Uh, she's going to be Ariel. Uh, Queen Latifah is Ursula. Um, I don't know who Eric is because I'm not 16, but uh, John Stamos is going to be like, that's the thing. If this was back in the day and they did the live action, John Stamos would have been my top pick for Eric. I think he looks like what Eric should look like. But this would have been way back in his early Uncle Jesse days. But anyway, when he was playing going with the Beach to be, Boys. Uh, yes. He's going to be Chef Louis, um, which which I love. I think I think that's going to be a lot of fun. And I I wish that you know I wish this was the cast for the live action. I'm excited for it. I'm some of these made for TV musicals. I think we talked about it with John Sakari. We did when we had him on when we talked about Mary Poppins Returns. Some of these live to television musical adaptations are very hit or miss. Mm. This is the first stab that Disney has taken at this. So I, I like the cast so far. I'm just intrigued to see how they pull it all off. I, you know what? I don't think they should have started with this one. If we were doing, you know, you're going to do the live musicals because there is so much controversy right now over the cast of the live action remake. And I also feel like, I, I mean, maybe they're going to little mermaid was on Broadway. So maybe they're going to stick to that and, and, you know, do some of those similar sight gags. I don't want to ruin what we're going to see in the live action either. Right. Well, we're going to see it soon enough. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. I'm almost as excited about the uh, Little Mermaid live on television musical adaptation as I am to say, finally, The Rock has come back to Disney+, Plus, even though Disney+, Plus has not yet launched. The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, Seven Bucks Productions, is working on that docuseries, um, about the Imagineers that we had been talking about months ago. Behind when, the attraction. Yeah, behind the attraction, where they talk about the Imagineers 
what it took to develop the rides, how they maintain the rides. It's that peek behind the curtain. And I was excited when I heard that the concept for this was out there. And then earlier this week, hearing that it's Dwayne Johnson's company, Seven Bucks Productions, behind it, I couldn't be more excited because you want to talk about somebody, and you did just now, talk about somebody who's been brought into the fold and is such a massive Disney fan. And yeah. I've met, now I've met him before. He's a wonderful person. He, you know, like what you see on TV and what you see on social media is what you get. He is as nice and as genuine a person as you're going to meet. I would love to ride the Jungle Cruise with this man. <laughs> I'd love to go to uh, the Skipper Cantina with this man. And just talk to him. I don't even want to, I already have his autograph. I don't need to take a picture with him. I just want to talk Disney with him. I want to drink his tequila and talk Disney with him. We should work on that for the show. Oh, don't you think for two seconds I'm not trying to get on that show? Well, you keep me up to date. Well, you have no choice. You have to keep me up to date. <laughs> but we want to know what you guys have to say if you guys are excited about uh, either of those bits of news this week, whether it's the musical interpretation of The Little Mermaid or this brand new docuseries behind the magic sort of thing, behind the attraction with Dwayne Johnson's company coming to Disney Plus this coming winter on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. We thank you guys so much for joining us this week. What did, what was it like being on the other side of, of the computer screen? I didn't ask you. Um, well, I'm really happy because I can see Walt behind you, and I miss him. So that was nice. <laughs> and he's behaving himself. Yeah, for the first time all night, I, I will say. You may miss him, but you did not miss the uh, fiasco and the temper tantrum that was earlier today. Oh, boy. Um, no, this was this was cool. I mean, I miss, I, I miss our studio setup, but I'm happy we were able to get the episode out this week. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely different. Than, than being on the receiving end of it and seeing Randy Cartwright staring back at you. Very true. <laughs> I was a lot calmer this episode. Well, that's good to know. Just like it's good to know that you are enjoying a little bit of time out in the Hamptons before we go and enjoy a little time in the parks up to... I'm working for this vacation, let me tell you. Up to and including our monorail with monorail event Keep it locked on the social media. More information is coming soon. Of course, if you would like to come to Disney World and join us for that occasion, Jackie can help get you there. Yes. When I'm not working in television or film festivals, I am booking Disney vacations. Um, so I would love to help you plan yours. Um, get in touch with me on our social media at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.